Before we return to Bringing Light into Darkness, Monday News and Analysis, just a reminder. Hey there, this is our membership drive, and that means you can support Co-op Radio financially by calling right now, 472-5667. That's 512-472-KOOP, or go to our website, koop.org. Tell us what you like most about Co-op Radio. We know times have been challenging, to say the least. There's an old saying, you got to be a friend to have friends. And this is your community radio station friend, 91.7 KOOP, right here in Austin, Texas. Community radio, volunteer-driven, and twice a year we come to you to help support financially what makes Austin, Austin, Texas. That's This particular show is a pretty serious show, but it's a friendly show. And we're reaching out to our friends to support community radio. So please do so now. Call 472-5667. That's 512-472-5667. Operators are waiting to share the credible gifts that accommodate different levels of donations. Regardless of whether you can scrape up some coin here for us, we cherish you guys. So please encourage your friends to dial in at 91.7 FM. We now return to a sensational interview we had with Kathy Kelly as she shares experiences that bring light into the darkness of the foreign policy outcomes that so many Americans are unaware of. Thanks for joining us and supporting 91.7 KOOP. Yeah, you made the poignant point earlier, too, that these wars are often profitable to military-industrial connected industries and that type of thing. The thing I really wanted to also share, the, you know, The Guardian did a really good piece on that whole Bremer 100 orders and stuff. Bremer basically just privatized the banking and, and the water and, and, and all of these, uh, the whole economy. But at the end of the day, it's like $8.8 billion, the entire Iraqi interim government led by Paul Bremer of the USA, they found that $8.8 billion of spending from October 2003 through June 2004 was unaccounted for. Later, audits showed rampant fraud under the protection of Paul Bremer's leadership in the Coalition Provisional Authority. So after the sanction period, based on three major lies that Saddam had weapons of mass destruction, that he was harboring al-Qaeda, and that he was responsible for 9-11. We invaded Iraq and the humanitarian disaster continued and increased. And most people think that it was a failure. The invasion was a failure when in fact, in a sense, mission was accomplished. The United States under Paul Bremer literally took over the economy of Iraq. The sovereignty of a nation's economy was usurped and the profiteering was enormous. This is well documented. For the sake of time, I will not redocument it here. And so much money was made by these big Halliburton and Bechtel and all of these companies, you know, $8.8 billion just disappearing. Some of these were reconstruction funds and that type of thing, or at least not accounted for. And at the end of the day, I guess what's so, so disturbing is Bremer. He got the Presidential uh, Medal of Honor from George Bush. 
You know, mm-hmm. this is the highest civilian award you can give to somebody. So basically what we're showing the world, if if you follow the dots and connect them, is that we reward this type of behavior and we cover it up by claiming it's humanitarian in nature. So I just wanted to ask you to speak also to the issues in other countries. You, you mentioned you heroically were part of the Fort Benning crossing the line group that had done that annually for a couple of decades. And for those that are not familiar, this used to be called the School of Americas and then got changed to the Western Hemispheric something or another. But at the end of the day, we, we were training military personnel to go back to their countries and launch these horrific wars. You referred to it earlier. You talked about Central America. Most of these were in Central American nations. And then you, along with others, would go and protest on an annual basis. And those that crossed over into the fence or whatever were actually incarcerated at federal prisons and that type of thing. But this whole war machine that's kind of behind the curtain that that you've been protesting against. Can you give our listeners a little bit more insights into the Fort Benning groups and how that's connected to your other anti-war work that you and others have done in Iraq and Afghanistan? Well, I think it's always good to ask, who are the criminals in our society that most threaten people's security? Now, having been a federal prisoner, I don't want anyone to go to prison. I don't believe in human caging. But I do believe there are people who need to be rehabilitated, and they are the ones who create such threats to other people that they would train others to engage in death squads and assassinations and massacres, as happens inside that Army School of the Americas. And that's also where the MPs were trained, who then went and committed abuses in Abu Ghraib. I think that we often have a sense that the people who are the chief executive officers in the salons and the very well-appointed places at the heads of you know Lockheed Martin and Raytheon and uh, Boeing, people who make big donations to universities and scientific education endeavors, you know, we, we, we kind of gloss over the fact that what they're creating will disembowel and decapitate and maim and kill people and cause enormous bloodshed and destruction and terror. So I, when I'm inside a prison, I, I don't meet people. I mean, I, wherever they keep the bad sisters, I haven't met them yet. I've been in maximum and minimum and medium security U.S. prisons and lots and lots of county jails. And, and I don't meet people whom I think are a big threat to society. I, I meet people who could have been my co-workers, my next-door neighbors, my in-laws. And maybe I, uh, well, unquestionably, I would say that many experience great, great sorrow and remorse for anything they did that might have hurt their families, their children. But to keep on mercilessly punishing people is is, again, a sign of bullying and unwillingness to really address problems with a a desire to see social change and transformation. But again, I do think that's beginning to change. I'm, I'm very pleased to see the Black Lives Matter movement and other young people uh, insisting that some of these terrible programs like, you know, cash bail have to be eliminated, which happened here in Chicago. I mean, I think we are seeing a much more empathy, much more awareness, but it's not happening 
I don't think, commensurate to the level of crimes that are still being committed. We still see the United States military being able to talk about humanitarian wars, basically, or Mm -hmm. the responsibility to protect and being able to market these wars. And again, I, I think they're mainly undertaken in order to take other people's precious and irreplaceable resources at cut rate prices. So how can we continue this endeavor to wake people up, I suppose? Uh, I think one means is through civil disobedience. Some of my closest friends right now are in prison. Uh, They're the Kings Bay Plowshares activists, and they're serving long sentences in comparison to um, other civil disobedience actions, uh, but not in comparison to people they're locked up with. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they've all got between 10 and 14-month sentences, and uh, Father Steve Kelly, a Jesuit priest, has, is still in jail, and he's now served 35 months. But when you communicate to the sort of the, the justice system that you recognize that the laws are made to protect the people who often are the greatest threat to our society and that you won't be governed by unjust laws. That, I think, allows a certain freedom, and that's what we were trying to do with the economic sanctions uh, issue, to say um, whatever threats that you have, and we were threatened with 12 years in prison and a $1 million fine and a $250,000 administrative penalty, and we always sent letters saying, thank you for the clarity of the warning. We understood the uh, penalties, but we find that we can't be governed by unjust laws, and we invite you to join us. And then we'd also do a lot of um, 30-day fasts annually or long walks. And at the end of every week during one of those fasts, we'd cook lentils and rice and bring it over to the steps of the U.S. Mission to the U.N. in New York City and say to people inside that building, come down and break fast with us. We'll break our fast if you'll come and just listen to what we've seen and heard while we've been in Iraq. But they never would. We'd always get arrested, and then we'd have another set of court dates. Well, that's fascinating. I want to remind our listeners that we are visiting with Miss Kathy Kelly. What an amazing expression of International Women's Day, at least from where I sit, to uh, have you on the show. We have been covering over the last couple of months fairly recent Oxfam reports looking at the plight of women in in such an unfair world that's documented by this wealth inequality and such and how many hours of unpaid labor time that type of thing that Oxfam has documented to women and and the work that women do in order to provide somewhat of a cushion per se to how many people would perish off this earth if it wasn't for these sacrifices. I don't mean to suggest Mm -hmm. that's where you fit, but you're just very inspiring. The fact that you have for many decades now participated in these civil disobedient acts and not just civil disobedience, but educated uh, so many people. Before we close out the show, I wanted to go back. You mentioned Alan Pogue, and he's a friend, and uh, we've done a lot of work together. I learned so much from Alan, and, and part of it was he introduced me to Thomas J. Nagy's article that uh, he wrote back in 2001. That's Thomas J. Nagy of the George Washington University, in which he had discovered surreptitiously a declassified U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency document. It was entitled, Iraq Water Treatment Vulnerabilities. And the actual declassified deal, 
it actually indicated what types of sanitation problems and children's health problems and all of these things that could occur. And, and there was a letter that he quoted from Representative Tony Hall to Secretary of State Albright, who described in this press release back in June in 2000, that I share UNICEF's concerns about the profound effects of increased deterioration of Iraq's water supply and sanitation systems on its children's health, the prime killer of children under five years of age, diarrheal diseases has reached epidemic proportions and they now strike four times more than they did in 1990. In the same June 2000 Tony Hall press release, it goes on, quote, holds on contracts for the water and sanitation sector are a prime reason for the increases in sickness and death. Of the 18 contracts, all but one hold was placed by the U.S. government. The contracts are for purification chemicals, chlorinators, chemical dosing pumps, water tankers, and other equipment. Steps have been taken to assure dual-use items are not diverted. Dual-use meaning, of course, that it can be used for military purposes, chemical weapons. UNICEF follows the United Nations three-tier monitoring system to ensure equipment and supplies are used as they are intended. I urge you, Secretary Albright, to weigh your decision against the disease and death that are the unavoidable result of not having safe drinking water and minimum levels of sanitation. So the concern of dual use for chlorination and chlorinators for the water and therefore vetoing them through the UN by the US and the UK was a canard. It was a a known false concern that resulted in 10 years or so of inaccess to properly chlorinated water and the resulting death and sicknesses that that created in Iraq. In other words, this was a premeditated known consequence. And so we fast forward from 1990s to the 2000s to today, and you're seeing the exact same thing, Kathy, as you indicated, in Yemen. Their water supplies, their sanitation systems completely knocked out as well. And then in Libya, their water systems their whole infrastructure was destroyed in this invasion and now from being the you know the most advanced country in Africa they are now a hotbed of of jihadists and uh, unspeakable crimes to close out the show i wanted to ask if you would comment on you teach some online courses for the school of social and cultural change they include interactive online calls uh, with people from those parts of the world we've been talking about And I was wondering if you could just share a little bit of information for people that are interested to not turn their back on the results of our foreign policy, but become better acquainted with it. Can you share a little bit about these online courses? I've been so, so fortunate to learn and often from some very young and bright and compassionate people in other lands. And particularly right now, I'm, I'm, I'm just thrilled because... Uh, four of my young Afghan friends are going to be part of a course I'm teaching, and we'll talk about these these various issues over a period of eight weeks from uh, April 1st to the end of May. And and so people who know them get will get a chance to reconnect. And I hope many other people who are curious, who are genuinely curious and who 
really want to better understand uh, as best we can the consequences of war. And particularly for these young Afghans, I've, I've watched them over the years. They do their own kind of surveillance, really. And that involves uh, not having a drone fly overhead, but pick their way up an icy mountain path. There's not even a path when you get up toward the top. And then sitting in hovels with widows who don't have any water because it doesn't go up that high. So that's why the rent is cheaper. And then they ask the questions, how often do people in your family eat beans in the course of a month? Because they know nobody's getting meat. And who earns the main income for this family? And if that main income earner is under 12 years of age, then that survey goes to the top of the pile, and then they figure out how to bring the widow's children into a street kid's school or help the widows earn a meager income by making heavy blankets, and then those blankets are distributed free of charge in the refugee camps. And then they'll take me into a refugee camp and let me sit by while they teach classes inside. I mean, I'm so grateful to have these youngsters, and they've they've studied hard. Their English is quite good. So they'll they'll kind of team teach with me because with these online courses you can do a once a week Zoom call. So I'm glad for that kind of technology and for in some ways a world that is less demarcated by borders. We still have that border of the haves and the have nots everywhere, but I think we can begin to collaborate constantly. And I, you know I'm so fortunate also to hear from. Young university students, yesterday I had a chance to talk with 20 of them on a Zoom call with DePaul University, and they weren't in a peace and justice course. These were finance and accounting and journalist students who chose as an elective to learn more about um, Chicago uh, issues related to justice and demographics. So I think there's so much we can learn from one another. We can catch courage from one another. You know, courage is the ability to control our fears and not be governed by fears, even though there there is a great terror that we face, the terror of what we're doing to our own environment. I'm also a, a big fan of community radio, and I'm so pleased to know that you can say that Co-op is the premier uh, community radio station in the United States. That's wonderful. <laughs> well, thank you. Say it again. Uh, uh... <laughs> Well, it is because it, it, well, it is because of having people getting access to your experiences and others that you just don't get on other radio sh- stations. You know, you mentioned NPR. I can really relate to that. If we don't know there's a problem, then why would we want to fix a problem? Our press just does not do a good job of uh, giving us the full human experience that's going on in the world. And it's really a great honor to be part of Co-op Radio. Also, I wanted to give a big shout out to all the women at Co-op Radio on International Mm -hmm. Women's Month because we've got so many talented women that do many different shows and just wanted to kind of squeeze that into the show here too. But again, before we let you go, if people want more information that tunes them into some of these things that are just not making or percolating up to the mainstream or even some of the alternative medias. Do you have any special resources that you would indicate might be worthy to check out? And if people want more information about some of your online programming classes or whatever, can you share a website? Well, um, sscc.teachable.com. 
dot com. If people can remember that, two S's and two C's. S S C C dot teachable dot com. And Noam Chomsky's offering a course, and uh, David Swanson and uh, Michael Albert, and and mine is called Lay Down My Sword and Shield. Um, for other um, input, I've, I'm so grateful for democracy now. Mm-hmm. Uh, now Amy speaks of the quarantine report and had normally spoken of the war and peace report, but I still find that enormously helpful. I do read articles every month from the New York Review of Books, and I usually find that that helps me sort of understand to some extent a bigger picture and context within the United States. I find that um, the Real News Network and uh, at times Al Jazeera are very helpful. I'm, I'm very grateful on Twitter to read the Twitter feed of two people in particular, uh, Dr. Aisha Juman, J-U-M-A-A-N, an, an epidemiologist living in uh, near Seattle, Washington, on Mercer Island. And she's so um, competent and uh, clear in her analysis and dedicated to her country and goes back there every year and has founded the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Fund. And then Shireen Al-Adeni, also of Yemen, who has dedicated her Twitter feed to constantly bringing information to people that they might not otherwise get. I I guess I'd also want to mention Iona Craig, I-O-N-A-C-R-A-I-G, and she's a jockey (laughs) Um, living in Scotland right now, uh, doing work as a shepherdess as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, her writing is brilliant. She's the one who went to the village of Al-Rayal when the Navy SEALs had uh, done a, I guess you'd call it a botched raid there. And and she found the names and the circumstances of the nine children who were killed that same night that Mm. Chief Petty Officer Ryan Owen was killed. And uh, President Trump had called great attention and a four-minute standing ovation for the widow of Chief Petty Officer Ryan Owen. I found it an enormously uh, awkward moment as she was tearful and everybody's cheering and and Mm -hmm. he was shouting, um, you know he's in heaven, you know he's looking down on you, you know he'll never be forgotten. But Iona Craig makes it clear that we ought not to forget that there were children with their mothers sleeping in a hut when two of these hideous paveway missiles tore through the fragile roof of that hut. Mm -hmm. And uh, the mother, terrified, with her newborn in her arms and holding the hand of her five-year-old, had to decide, you know, do I shepherd my sister and her children and my children out of here, or do we stay indoors? It was the middle of the night. And as soon as she stepped out, a United States helicopter gunship fired at her and killed her. Um, well, once again, these are things that people throughout the world experience, but we just don't. Uh, it's kept from, from our eyes and ears and such. I want to thank you so much for sharing this last hour with us. And I want to remind folks, we've had the great pleasure of visiting with Kathy Kelly. In fact, she recently posted an article on Common Dreams on March 2nd called Operation Desert Storm, Blood for Oil. If people want more information 
uh, related to some of Kathy's work, they can access that article. Thank you so much, Kathy. Best of health and good wishes for you, and we'll stay in contact and look forward to uh, having uh, conversations in the future. Well, thank you, Pedro, and thank you to all your listeners, and a, a glorious International Women's Day for all. And um, I have to say that every time I remember seeing the bats fly from under the cave in Austin, I thought, oh, I want to come back. <laughs> well, please do, and, th- right, and thank, thank you, you once again. Bye-bye. We take you out as we do each week with Land of Naivety. See you next week. Yeah.